Listener Production. We should be worried a little bit, but we know it's happening. We know it's coming. It's sort of not a shock. It's well known. As we're just sort of saying that people took out these mortgages, hopefully with a full realisation that they would fall due, um, you know, at the time of expiry, predominantly through the course of 2023. I am confident, I know, many of the financial institutions, banks and others are telling their customers in this position, hey, be prepared. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool and, of course, the host of this podcast, The Good Oil. Now, if you are late to the podcast, I hope you haven't been, I hope you've actually heard our guest before, but we'll get to that. If you are late to it, The Good Oil is giving someone the good stuff, the real stuff, the important stuff, the stuff you really need and want to know. And that's the aim of this podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives and experts the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Now, I have a very special guest. He's the first return guest. He also was our very first guest on The Good Oil. Of course, I'm talking about the economist extraordinaire, Stephen Kakoulis. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm well. Good to be back. And gosh, what a year it's been and what a year ahead. <laughs> Lots to talk about, no doubt, in this fabulous oh. podcast. Oh, you're very kind. So much, mate. You were our first. Look, we, we chatted in August of 2021, which feels like about 84 years ago. If dog years are seven years, I think economist years must be 10 or 15, I've got to assume, mate, because I don't think we touched on emerging inflation at that point because I don't think it quite had turned up in the US, but we weren't to know that it was probably, what, two months away in the States and maybe five or six months away here. But gee, I tell you what, 16 months later, a lot has changed in the economy. Look, that, that's been the biggest issue for me on the last, yes, 18 months or so of the economy. It is inflation. It has reared its ugly head, and it's a very ugly head that's out there. Uh, it caught investors, central banks, other policymakers, business people, householders by surprise. And, you know, we're learning now that after having had, you know, the best part of 30 years of low and relatively stable inflation what a horrible thing high inflation is it absolutely is mate i'm gonna i want to give you a plug not well partly because i want to give you a plug but partly because some of the stuff you've been doing lately is spectacularly good so if you're not following Stephen on i've said certainly said on linkedin um the the chat you do with mark burris regularly you have your 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 whiteboard with little markers on there and you go through individual circumstances and economic uh inputs i'll call them and you kind of talk about the impact of those and what they might do to rates next. I reckon, mate, that's about as simple, easy, clear, um, short explanation of the economic circumstance and interest rates I think I've ever seen. Just really, really, really cleverly done. Uh, you and Mark do it. It's only, what, it's only three, four, five minutes, whatever it is. I've been doing this for years now, but even for me, I, I really enjoyed just the really short, sharp, obvious, clear. It's a white bulb with some magnetic markers. Like, it's just really, really clever. Um, mate, so you, you published it on LinkedIn. Is it published anywhere else, just so I can let listeners know? It's on uh, Mentored, which is Mark's own uh, web platform. And so you can sort of see it there. And we do it um, the day before each RBA board meeting. So there's 11 of them each year. We record it just a, a day or two before that and just sort of go through what's happened in the past month. How good was our forecast for the last RBA meeting and what's happened? And some months, you know, there's big news. A lot of it's global right now with the global central banks hiking like crazy. A lot of it's domestic. What's happened to house prices? Obviously, something dear to everybody's heart, including Mark's and mine. <laughs> and then what's happened to the RBA policy? What's happened to the budget? You know, not that they happen all that often, but when they do, they can have some impact on the economy. And do we have a budget problem or are we having a budget repair strategy from, from the government? So we feed into all these sorts of things and just have a, have a pretty friendly chat. 
So jump on Twitter, jumped on LinkedIn. But here was the, this is the text you posted. Uh, we're recording this, by the way. I should date stamp it because anything could change. 16th of December. Uh, Stephen, you wrote, well done, Dr. Lowe. A 48-year low unemployment rate. It's one silver lining in the current inflation malaise. Policy was too easy for too long. But at least we have a situation where just about everyone who wants a job has a job. But, you're right, seek job ads are down 20% in the last six months. Is this as good as it gets? Till then, let's dance like Joy Division, which I loved, and celebrate the irony. Uh, and again, there was a video that goes with it. So again, listeners, check that out, uh, LinkedIn or, or Twitter for Stephen. Um, mate, just to, let, let's just start exactly there. There's so much going on right now. Um, this to me strikes me as this is the classic economic overheat. The economy is at capacity on raw materials, on labour, on all that kind of stuff. We're not yet seeing massive price increase, uh, wage increases. We're definitely seeing massive price increases. But this is this is the this is the classic. I don't think it's a definition, but the classic definition of an overheating economy to mine. But as you say, there are some senses that maybe this is as good as it gets, and maybe there is some downside coming. Just give me the background to that that thought you posted on LinkedIn. Let's go back twelve months. Okay, um, <laughs> interest rates globally were effectively at zero percent. Central banks were, were still printing money like crazy. We had quantitative easing going on, and we still had the effects of what was extremely easy fiscal policy around the world. Yeah, you know, and and sort of fair enough too. We were in the the midst of a pandemic. We didn't know how bad it would be, how long it would last, what the economic consequences were. So. Policymakers, central banks, governments, everybody was throwing the kitchen sink at the problem, and and, and fair enough. That was that was absolutely yeah. the appropriate policy because things were gl- gr- grim, uh, and you know many people were forecasting double-digit unemployment rates and deep, 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 long-lasting recessions. Fair enough. Okay. However, as we got vaccinated globally, as we sort of found that people were starting to do stuff again they realised, gee, these interest rates are low. Oh, gosh, there's so much money in the economy. The And if you look at the GDP numbers, people say it was a supply chain problem. And yes, that was part of the problem why inflation rose. You know, we couldn't get access to things because of uh, a shortage and prices go up in a shortage, of course. But demand was also boiling that we consumers in particular were thinking, gee, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm going to buy that house. I'm going to spend that money. I'm going to go on that holiday again now that I can. And so we had this inflation surge. Now, the reason I've given that background is that if we recall, again, approximately 12 months ago without sort of date stamping the day when the Federal Reserve were the main culprits, as long as our, as, as well as our own uh, RBA Governor Ian Lowe, uh, mm-hmm. Ian Lowe, God, Philip, Philip Lowe. Um, <laughs> Ian's brother, Phil, yep. Yep, yep. <laughs> that, you know, it's transitory. This is only a temporary lip, lip in inflation, so they did nothing on policy. Uh, and now, the fact that they were slow to hike in the US, slow to hike here, don't think it was only May, uh, that we saw the first interest rate hike, and that was only 25 basis points as well, recall, um, you know, and coming from a 0.1% official cash rate, that this inflation pressure was unleashed. And that's where the problems came with this inflation pressure. Now, there's one side effect, as you said, in the in your uh, lead-in, and that's the unemployment rates at 3.4%. Now, any economist worth their salt wants full employment. It's a good thing. It's good for the economy. It's good for society. It's good for business. You know, it, it's a desirable thing. And in fact, the overarching aim of all policy, in, in my view, should be to have full employment. Everybody who wants a job has a job. It's a great thing. And then we'll manage all the other things that come from that. You know, if you don't have that, you've got a problem to start with. Anyway, so we've got 3.4% unemployment. That's great news. Um, now the question is, well, 
are we at over full employment? As you alluded to, you know, there's still worker shortages out there. People are finding it very hard to find staff, skilled, unskilled, semi-skilled in all states and territories and, you know, across the across the board. So that's the legacy of the economy booming because policy was so easy 12 months ago. Um, and now we've got policy having been tightened. You know, the hot debate right now, and I'm sure we'll touch on this a bit further, is, you know, uh, what sort of outlook is there for 2023? When will growth slow? When will unemployment pick up? And how much will it pick up? And is that a necessary condition for getting inflation back to these targets? Uh, yeah, I, and we will get 2023 in a minute, mate. I want to spend a little bit, a couple of minutes more on, on 2022 before we start looking forward, because frankly, the past is the past. But as any, as you say, good economist knows, it is learning from the past that tells you uh, a bit about what you can think about the future. Um, I want to go back to rates, mate. I I am probably too kind to, to Phil Lowe and, and the world's central bankers um, because I think they'd convinced themselves that inflation was dead. And I think they were so desperately scared of settings that might create another GFC that they were overly, ironically, overly <laughs> generous. We saw, again, I'm not sure of your view on this, but my view is that Alan Greenspan's ultra-low rates, accommodative policies, and low regulation led to some of the dramas in the 2000s. I feel like we kind of replicated that with cheap and easy money in, in at the end in 2020 and 2022. But it was a sense, so going back to that, I think it was probably October, November last year, the Fed had high interest rates, and they said, well, maybe it's transitory. And then it wasn't. And then our RBA said, well, it's probably just a US problem. And it wasn't. Um, it, it felt to me like with every good intention, with every, absolutely every, you know, these guys aren't out there to try and wreck things. I think they just wanted to believe. I think it's one of those X-Files things, you know, that we want to believe. Um, hopefully it's not because it shouldn't be. Hopefully it's not because that'd be bad. Hopefully that's not because we'd have to put rates up. So let's just hope that it's not. And it does strike me that easy, everything's easy in hindsight. But I did say at the time, I'm pretty sure I wrote it on Twitter, that I was worried we might be seeing the movie. <laughs> you know, we're seeing the movie happen in the US before we see it here. Um, and that's kind of what did happen. Your, your thoughts on obviously mistakes made, but how reasonable or unreasonable were those mistakes? Yeah, I, I think the problem that you that you touch on quite rightly there is that there was this expectation that inflation would stay extremely low for a long period of time. And, and when we sort of look back, inflation's at a 32-year high. Not many people have seen inflation this high. Yeah, right. You know, I think um, most central bankers were still, you know, at school probably when, when inflation was this high. So we haven't really learned what to do. It's not the sort of thing that we see every day of the week happening. So that when it came along, oh, no, I don't recognise this, so it can't be true. Now, that, that's, a, that's a bit of a, an excuse for them and, uh, I guess that, you know, as we were saying a moment ago, that that easy policy was appropriate for the time. But when interest rates are zero and you get a sniff even of higher inflation and a sharp improvement in the labour market and improving economic conditions, that to start hiking interest rates from effectively zero to, say, 1%, you know, you can go in baby steps. Just so maybe you did go a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, of a percentage point in each of four meetings in late 21 or 22, you would not have killed the economy. You know, COVID, even with COVID issues, sort of uh, overhanging the economy. So the fact that they waited and waited and waited that, whoops, oh, geez, this inflation issue is a problem. It's very, very, very hard, as we're seeing, clearly, and anybody who's looked at economic history in the 70s and 80s, it is hard to rein inflation in once it gets out of control. The expectations change for both businesses, for consumers, for householders. And to rein it back in takes the proverbial sledgehammer to, to, 
to cool the economy down, to bring us to our senses, if you like, and therefore to you know pay back our spending, pay back our borrowing, which of course is what tight monetary policy is yes. all about, <laughs> and then to bring inflation back under control. So, look, they could have done more early. The fact that they've caught up now and are catching up, in my view, very aggressively, certainly in the US, that they've now hiked you know to a level that's clearly restrictive, in, in my view. Um, so that they'll meet their inflation targets, there's no doubt. But it's the question: you know, Do you need that last dose of medicine when you've already been medicated enough to get inflation <laughs> back down? And that, so I guess that does that does take us to um, that does take us to 2023, I suppose, mate. Because you've already mentioned, or in your, your LinkedIn post that I read, you've talked about job ads. You mentioned just in passing consumer confidence and where that sits. It's pretty diabolical. It's kind of COVIDish lows. Um, and yet, and yet, as we, before we get to 2023, as we transition in the conversation, we are still spending up big. Um, the Black Friday sales, Christmas sales, uh, national savings is going down from a peak of over 20% during the worst of COVID to back to, I think, 6.9% was the last one. And I think I'm right in saying long-term average is about six. So I kind of, we're back to normal-ish levels, uh, if, if I'm right, if I'm not, tell me. Um, so it kind of feels like there's one last hurrah. It almost it almost feels like we know we, we shouldn't be confident about the future, but we're not quite ready to face it just yet. You know, it's 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 twenty it's a twenty twenty three problem. It's not a, it's not a now problem. Is is that where we find ourselves in December twenty twenty two? Look, there's a strong hint of that still, but there are some of these amber lights flashing, if you like, on us consumers. And I go back to this even the September quarter retail sales numbers in volume terms, in real terms, they only rose by 0.2%, which, okay, after a couple of very strong quarters is probably just a natural pullback. You know, we can't keep spending at, you know, very strong pace. But the retail sales numbers for October are actually minus 0.2% month on month. Again, uh, that that is in nominal terms. So if we assume that monthly inflation was, say, half a percent, then in real terms, it's probably a bit more of a pullback than we're seeing. And one of the things that I'm learning to sort of try to interpret it's a is the internal data that the banks increasingly are producing on their credit card turnover or their sales and you know i think if i'm not mistaken all the big banks do a sort of like a card tracker or a or a turnover on their own internal data and all of them are suggesting that while we had you know the black friday sales and all these other things and clearly we're coming into the festivity season where we all spend up a lot of money um it's sort of seasonally a touch weaker than is normally the case so it says to me that we consumers are responding to the higher interest rates already and you know again it's not catastrophic but you know, that that weakness in consumer sentiment the fall in house prices the sort of soggy position of the stock market and these sorts of things that impact down our wealth and confidence are just seeing us pair back our spinning again we want to, like all economists, I want to see the next bit of data. I want to see the next <laughs> yeah. retail sales number. But my hunch is that it's going to be soft, you know, not not catastrophic, but we're going to see a figure that when it finally comes out for the months of November and December and then into January, they'll be showing, oh, there's a slowdown occurring in consumer spending. And it kind of has to be, right? Like, uh, the, 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 maths of, the maths of the economy, just there's only so many ways. And part of the part of it is the reduction in, in, in the savings rate, although we should make clear we're still saving. We're not running down those savings. We're just saving less. But that still has a momentum impact on, on our amount of spending because by, by saving less, we're spending more. So it does kind of increase it for a little bit of time and that eventually peters out as well. Um, 
so let, one more thing before we move to next year, mate. ANZ, Shane Elliott was out, uh, I want to say yesterday, again, what's the date stamps? It'll be the 15th of December. Basically saying they're seeing signs of stress in their borrowers. They are already talking to borrowers about refinancing, about loan deferrals. And in some cases, he, I, I won't quote him directly, but his words are close enough too. In some cases, we're persuading our borrowers to sell, to repay the debt. Um, that's the least optimistic i think i've heard a bank ceo as well um some of them have been really really oh no we're seeing no problems our average borrowings are fine and i'm always i'm always scared about averages because we all know it's distributions that matter not averages right it's those people on the edges and the margins who are going to feel the pain well most of us won't because most of us won't lose our jobs or most of us can't afford all that kind of stuff um but that that also was a bit of a wake-up call to me i think not so much that he said it because i think we all knew it was around or about but just Say, oh, sorry, not so much because it was true, but the fact he said it, the the, the admission, I think, was was interesting. And I think it's sort of feeding into this discussion too that's out there, which will come into focus in the next few months, is the so-called mortgage cliff. You know that we know a lot of borrowers took out extremely advantageous uh, loans, fixed rates for two to three years, usually uh, about eighteen months ago. So by definition, a lot of those are are falling. Uh, due for renewal and rolling over into a much higher interest rate environment. So uh, I suspect he's sort of flagging the prospect that people who are in that category, and if, again, if I was a bank CEO, I'd be telling my people to ring ring everybody who's got a mortgage like that and, and just tell them, shout from the mountaintops that, hey, you're going to be rolling your mortgage over into an interest rate structure that's three, three and a half, whatever percentage points higher and even though it may not be till May, June, July, August of 2023, it's coming and there's no, you know, don't bury your head in the sand. It's happening. You cannot avoid it. It's, it is happening. So start preparing for it now. Enjoy this, this big interest rate differential that you're saving. Yeah, that's right. Locked in. Don't, yeah. you know, so yeah. celebrate that. Good on you. you. You did exactly the right thing. However, be fully, fully alert to the fact. And I think that's what he's talking about in terms of, you know, getting out there and telling people who are in this position that, you know, it, it is an issue. You will be having to find an extra multiple hundreds of dollars per month. And in some cases, it might even be four figures. It might be thousands if you've got a, you know, even a slightly larger than average mortgage, um, you know, to, to click over to $1,000 a month extra in just simple repayments for your interest rate going up. And that will cause, you know, it's a, it's a genuinely financial stressful situation for many, many people. But gear up for it now. So that's the bit that I am most worried about next year, mate. It, it, I, I'm an optimist as by nature. I think we'll find a way through this. There may or may not be a, a shallow recession. I'll ask you about that in a second. So listeners, I'm going to ask Stephen about, about the chance of a recession. But before we do, um, I, I, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be a little bit... Um, alarmist is the wrong word. I'm not going to do it deliberately or, or, or even intentionally. But when I make the comparison to the subprime crisis and, and the GFC, it, it does raise those <laughs> eyebrows. And, and I want that to be the case. The thing that worries me most, the, 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 it's not about a black swan because we know it's coming, but the, the biggest potential risk I see to, to make things much worse than they might otherwise be is that reset process. If and when we have a situation where, I mean, you know, the ninja loans were terrible in the US. No, no income, no job, no asset. Right? It was stupid loans. But it wasn't so much the loans themselves, although that was part of the problem. It was when those loans reset from the honeymoon rates to normal variable rates that a whole lot of people got caught. Now, these weren't bad. Well, I, I would argue you may disagree. I don't think they were, I know they were badly um, uh, analysed or, 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 you know, the, the loans were, were provided reasonably responsibly by the banks. 
But we're still going to have that situation that you've just highlighted where people all of a sudden have these massive resets. And I just, I, I, I don't, it worries me a little bit that that could be a, a precipitous time if it does create some forced selling or meaningful amounts of forced selling that the, the, the flow and effect, the, you know, uh, the cause and effect of that may actually cause more damage than maybe we're thinking at the moment. How, how worried should we be about that? We should be worried a little bit, but we know it's happening. We know it's coming. It's sort of not a shock. Usually economics and economies you know, fall into you know, dislocation, recessions, hard landings from events that we can't foresee. It's well known, as we're just sort of saying, that people took out these mortgages, hopefully with a full realisation that they would fall due um, you know, at the time of expiry, yeah, predominantly through the course of 2023. I am confident, I know, many of the financial institutions, banks and others, are telling their customers in this position, hey, be prepared. At current, Even at current interest rates, this is what you're going to be rolling over into uh, and prepare for that. Now, I'm assuming many householders are doing their household budgets on the basis of that right now and saying that, okay, some people will be able to you know, swallow their pride and um, and be able to meet that repayment. You know, don't forget wages are going up a bit. So hopefully that's feeding into sort of some of an off, something of an offset to these higher costs, you know, to, to some extent. Uh, and hopefully people didn't borrow up to their eyebrows in terms of maximising the size of the loan. So there is a little bit of a buffer there too. That's the optimistic take on things. But, you know, I, it, it, it's one of those sort of ones where, uh, you know, the, the, the nature of, fin of finances, the money in offset accounts, hopefully people have been squirreling away money in their offset accounts ready to make the extra rep repayments when their loans fall due and the rollover occurs in their in their um, two and three year fixed rate mortgages. That's the question that we just don't know yet. We don't know what else is happening in the economy. The, the worst case or one of the bad cases or bad scenarios would be if we get to this period and the economy has slowed markedly and the unemployment rates well above 4%, for example, currently 3.4. So we have at least a half a percentage point, if not a, you know, three quarters or a full percentage point lift in the unemployment rate and you lose your job. That's the stress. That's, that's the main problem. If you have your job, you know, we Australians have a lovely history of, you know, <laughs> sacrificing all other expenditure to make our mortgage repayments. You know, we love our house and love our housing and, you know, we'll, we'll switch to, baked beans on toast rather than filet mignon to sort of uh, make our repayments. Maybe that's yeah, being yeah. a bit facetious, I'm sorry, but you know <laughs> what I mean? Um, no, exactly what I mean, yeah. And, and we will sort of um, uh, do everything we can to make our mortgage repayments. I'm hoping to see that come through as these loans fall due. I hope so too, mate. Uh, let, let's, let's hope so. Let's talk about 2023. We've talked a little bit about where we find ourselves right now. The economy is very, very strong in a whole lot of areas, which is precipitating higher inflation, which is precipitating higher interest rates, which is designed to slow the economy and to reduce inflation. You, I think, made, made a very clear statement, actually, that you, you're, I think you said you're something like you're sure that it's going to work, that, that you know, that what they've done, what they need to do to get rid of inflation. So maybe, uh, <laughs> I don't want to make this too big a question, but also I want to let you go where you want. We can maybe fill in some, some gaps if I've got some other questions. But as we go into 2023, what is happening? What is likely to happen? How do you see this playing out? Yeah, I'm looking also at not only the things that caused this inflation blowout, and as we just discussed a few moments ago, zero interest rates, fiscal pump priming were two that are no longer existing. In fact, not only are they no longer existing, they've switched from being hugely accommodative to now being at least neutral and possibly restrictive. 
So that's changed. So that gives me confidence that inflation is falling. And for me, on a range of issues, I'll put wages aside for the moment, but on commodity prices, they're all down. You know, the price of oil was 120 US dollars a barrel uh, in the middle of 2022. It's now 80-odd dollars, give or take. It's into the 70s and 80s or thereabouts. And look at your petrol price, even notwithstanding this excise tax change. We're paying, you know, 220, 230 a litre. Now we're paying 160, 170, 180 a litre. You know, that's low inflation. Um and similarly with a lot of other commodities, and you might say, well, I don't buy a lot of copper or <laughs> aluminium or all these sorts of things. But actually yeah. you do. When you buy yeah, your mobile right. phone and your computer mm-hmm. and all the other input costs into the manufacturing process, it'll mean that for a lot of manufacturers, their cost base is declining. They can maintain their margins without hiking their selling prices. So that's one one tiny element of the disinflation pressures that we're seeing. Supply chain issues have been largely resolved freight shipping container rates are back to where they were pre-pandemic. Production of semiconductor chips is booming. Car production's up. If you, you know, a year ago, if you wanted to buy a new car, it's oh, come back in six or eight or 12 months time and you might get it. Nowadays, look, Australia's probably got a little bit of a disadvantage of its geography from uh, where cars are made. So we still have a bit of a wait, but those waiting times have been massively reduced. So a lot of the supply chain problems, which did force prices up, have also not only stopped going in the wrong direction, they've reversed. And so that's going to have some impact on inflation as well. The issue, and you touched on this too, is the labour market and wages. What is happening there? And we know that wages growth is picking up. There's no question. It's just a matter of how strong that is. And I guess that's one factor that might make it harder for inflation to sort of rapidly free fall during the course of the year back to uh, the target range. If wages growth is very elevated, firms will sort of be inclined to pass on those higher costs in their selling prices. But, you know, the jury's out on that at the moment. If we do get the the, uh, unemployment rate ticking up, as the job ads are suggesting it will, and as the economy slows, maybe this wages issue will be one where we get some pickup on wages, but not the sort that feeds into ongoing inflation. I think that's one of the things I'm I'm most hopeful. I mean, and look, I'll, again, I'll make a statement. You're the you're the expert economist, so I'll, I'll let you tell me whether I'm right or wrong. But one of the things I I think is useful to think about, here, and why the central banks are so keen to really, really try and stop inflation debt is not that they can impact. And people say, well, these are global pressures. Why would they bother? And I think the you've kind of alluded to it that the fact that that yes, they're global pressures, but they start to feed into local pressures and become the second, third, fourth order impacts of, you know, copper goes up, so the price of computers goes up, so the wages go up, so the price of vegetables go up, and, you know, it, it rolls right through the economy. And to some degree, as you say, that, that's why they're so keen, because if you can, even if, I mean, the price of oil has gone down, even if it stayed exactly the same as it was 12 months later, the inflation of oil would then drop to exactly zero. If it was $120 a barrel then and now, that's so all you need to do is, is, is hope that that doesn't feed into anything else. Now, it's a full-on hope, but do your best to make sure it doesn't feed into anything else, which is why they're so keen to keep everything else on an even keel. Because if you can stop that second, third order impact, you do literally stop it dead. And even better when those prices actually fall, as you've said. Um, that strikes me as to why they're, so, they're pushing so hard right now, because you don't want the second, third, fourth year of inflation that you're still desperately trying to dampen down. Correct. And I think that that pass through and that it's called inflation expectations. If people expect prices to increase by 5%, they'll adjust their behavior accordingly. They'll say, oh, I, I do want a big pay rise. Oh, 
I'm, and if you're a business person, you'll say, well, this, you know, come January the 1st and July the 1st, I'm going to put my, up my prices uh, to cover my costs, whether they're real or imagined. <laughs> if they're real, well, then clearly, you know, you've got, a, you've got a genuine inflation problem being entrenched in your system. So inflation expectations are very important. And, and don't forget, until a year ago, <laughs> we had had basically uh, the best part of 30 years where inflation you know, was generally between 2 and 3%, occasionally spiked higher for a quarter or two, but then very quickly came back down or occasionally spiked lower and then generally came back up. And so this is the unusual thing now when we, we're getting, you know, inflation in Australia, you know, towards 8% in the US, 10%, UK, 11%, numbers that, you know, I, I can't fathom still, you know, that no, it's crazy that, you know, you don't want it to last. You want it to sort of reverse and, and, you know, and history says that well, the, the, well, there are several ways you can get it to reverse, but the easiest, arguably the most painful way, is to hike interest rates. You know, tighten economic policy, which by defini definition means that you know you and I and everybody out there has to sort of hunker down with our spending, and so the business people when they're sort of saying, "Oh, well, I put up my prices five percent," they say, "Oh, actually, business is a bit crook. I actually might even have to discount." to attract customers to my business and to maintain market share, which is sort of how you get inflation coming back down. Which would be, which would be lovely to hope for. Mate, let me ask you about wages because there's everyone's fighting their own corners and, and that's not unreasonable. I, I, I sometimes despair about lobby groups and other times I think I'm kind of glad they're there in one level because the, you know if they're adding to the debate, as long as our – that's why economists, by the way, people like you are so important and why our polys need to be so – forthright in their thinking and their honesty with the people which is also maybe a full-on hope but uh you know business is going to say we want this and need this and and you know the union is going to say we want and need this and acos are going to say we want and need this and they're all talking their own book but hopefully by kind of triangulating some of those things good policy might even be improved hopefully that's my optimistic view kirk uh but uh in that sense uh there is a whole lot of people saying hey the RBA says, don't put inflation into wages, please, because it'll only make things worse. And I think we all know that's kind of true. At the same time, you've got plenty of people saying, well, hang on, if I'm a bloody factory worker and I'm on you know, minimum wage or close enough to it, you tell me to pay 10% more for my everything else and 20% more for my energy, like, get off the grass, dude. Like, you know, maybe some of the fat cats can, can pay a bit more tax or maybe you can stop spending, but geez, you know, give me something because I've got to make it through. I know this is a social policy question rather than a pure economics question, but economics is political science, let's be honest. Um, what's your take on on how a responsible government, how a responsible Fair Work Commission, how a responsible negotiation between unions and employers should work, given what we've just said about the importance of keeping wages down, but also, frankly, I don't think anyone's cruel enough to say that you know people who are desperately can't afford to put their heaters or air conditioners on shouldn't be given a few more bucks to at least see them through. How would you square that circle if you were treasurer for a day? Gosh, you've, you've uh, opened up many different issues <laughs> Sorry, okay. on that one. Um, I'll start by saying if I could wave my magic wand mm. <laughs> for the economy, yeah. which of course I can't, nobody can, unfortunately, <laughs> you'd sort of have a position where, you know, you, and I'm a believer that we the 2 to 3% inflation target for the RBA is still sound. So okay. let's assume that that is where we go with this RBA review that's going to be mm -hmm. uh, announced shortly. Uh, so 2 to 3% inflation, yep. Let's, let's stick to that. If that's the base level for your inflation rate, well, what's a decent level of wage increases? Mm -hmm. You'd sort of say that with a reasonable level of productivity in the economy, three and a half to four percent or thereabouts. So you're getting moderate real wage increases year in, year out. And in one year, you probably won't feel the difference of a four percent wage increase when inflation's two and a half percent. But over a decade, yeah. all of a sudden, your living standards do improve, that they you do get that benefit. So 
That's my magic wand of solution, mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, okay. if we could ever impose that. And I think that blow-up that we saw with the pandemic caused that all to be dislocated. Now, your, your point about low-income earners, low-wage earners, is very true as well. And in a sense, this is where the uh, political side comes into it. You don't address the minimum wage issue by you know, having wage increases of 10 or 20%, no matter how worthy they may be for people on on very, very low wages. You, you need fiscal policy to fix those. Um, and that means, in simple terms, um, you use the budget settings, the tax system, the government payment system to look after those people at the lower end of the of the income spectrum by making um, you know housing affordable, access to healthcare and education affordable, these sorts of things. Um, and at a time when you know I'm still a bit of a believer in a balanced budget over the long run, uh, you know someone's got to pay for it. It is a bit, gosh, someone's got to pay for it. So therefore, how do you collect the money to do that? Uh, and that's where you know, income tax and GST debate comes into it. So the end of the day, you know, we, we do need to look after, you know, the the least well-off in society. You know, we're a decent economy. You know, we're a decent bunch of people here. And, you know, to have them, you know, sort of lingering and sort of near poverty or actually in poverty is a dreadful thing. You know, we're a rich country. We don't need to do that. But the question of politicians is, you know, how do you actually achieve it and achieve it fairly? Yeah, no, you, you've you've nailed it, mate. I, I echo those thoughts. I'd love to have a disagreement with you, but I can't. It seems very, very reasonable. <laughs> we have we have, I think, among uh, top, well, are we top two or three in the world for per capita wealth or something ridiculous. And you think, well, if we're a country like that, we should be uh, people should be able to, you know, have a decent standard of living at, at the bottom end of the income spectrum. And as you said, put put on the heater right. and the air conditioner, go to right. the doctor, go to the right. dentist, send their kids to school, and w- yep. without yep. actually huge financial pain. Yes, shouldn't correct. have to do it. Shouldn't have to do it that tough. Let's then go to the next uh, year. I'm a little bit mindful, mate. The other thing I'm a little bit concerned about is, to your point about the RBA doing its job too well, the, the, the faster inflation comes down, arguably the more risk the economy is of a recession, almost by definition, not, not because you know, low inflation means recession, but the, you know, if, you, if you do enough to create those deflationary or, or you know, massively lower inflationary circumstances, you are ripping a heap of spending out of the economy. You might get lucky because global prices come down, as we've said, and maybe they come down despite or, or regardless of what the RBA does, and maybe that's half the work done. But in, in the real world, if they do it too quickly, too effectively, that kind of raises the raises the risk for the economy. Ironically, what what do you what do you think? Or sorry, well, I'll start with what do you think will happen, and I'll ask you what should happen. So, um, like with all things, the RBA question is what should they do, what will they do? Kind of where are we by June? Yeah, look, I think the RBA is on hold. I think they will have a bias to hike interest rates, but when the reality check comes at each board meeting through from February and March, April, May, they'll have a bit of a reality check that the economy is slowing down, and they. Look, they still may hike, of course, of course. That's the only outcome, a hike or steady. They're the only two options on the table right now. Um, but they'll probably just be you know, mindful that, oh, there's some indicators coming through that the economy is slowing down sufficiently, globally as well as domestically, so we might sit tight. And I think that sort of uh, will feed into their into their thinking. Now, I did see on Twitter, I must confess, I can't remember where it came from because my Twitter feed sort of, gets lots of things coming through, but someone did an analysis of the US recessions in the US since 1900. Someone's done a lot of work going back 120 years of history. And in every recession in the US, and there's been about uh, a dozen of them in that time, in every single recession, 
within two years, the inflation rate had dropped by an average, an average this is, of about six percentage points every recession. So recessions do work in getting inflation down. So again, that comes to the thing, if you want low inflation, have a recession. It's this question that we learned from the 1990s and Mr. Keating's the recession we had to have to get inflation down to snap the inflation stick to those with a bit of economic history listening to this. But you know, can we get inflation down without a recession? Can we get inflation down with a with a growth slowdown? And I think that's the question that the RBA will be grappling with uh, you know, every day, every meeting that they have. And so obviously we'll look at the inflation data, but in a sense, that's a lagging indicator and it's been distorted by, you know, floods putting up the price of lettuces and, um, you know, energy prices, which, you know, the government's trying to fix with some other, you know, interesting schemes that they're implementing now. Um, but will inflation fall in underlying terms, putting aside those things because the economy is weakening? That's the big question to me. And if and if they do get evidence that the economy is dropping back to a an annualised growth rate of one and a half, two percent from the levels of 3.5% through the bulk of uh, the last 12 months, then maybe they've done enough. Look, I think we do. One, you, know, you remember the recession, you know, negative GDP and all those things, without getting to, too fine a point on the label of a recession. Um, one thing that's important to me guarding against recession is business investment. You know, the CapEx, capital expenditure numbers from the private sector business firms is pretty robust. Um, a lot of the things that they had in mind when COVID came along, they simply shelved. They weren't cancelled. And so a lot of businesses are now reacting, thinking, oh, gee, I do need to build that warehouse. I do need to ramp up my IT investment. I do need to sort of um, uh, invest in machinery and equipment because the economy is you know, sort of doing okay and I and you know, the price of labour is so high, I, I might buy a machine to do that job for me rather than people. So that puts and, – and given that the outlook for business investment is very strong, uh, that puts a bottom line under – under the economy, and it's we householders, it's us consumers that are going to determine whether we have a recession or not. So, again, alluding back to everything that we've discussed <laughs> so far, it's how we consumers respond to rate hikes, falling house prices, the rollover of a lot of fixed rate mortgages during this year. And if we and if we get hit hard and we really do pare back spending, then almost by definition we have a recession. But if it's just this hunkering down, we sort of shift our spending patterns, we you know, maybe run down savings a little bit. The the call of a recession, it's pretty hard to actually achieve. And again, the RBA, despite Phil Lowe making mistakes in the last couple of years on policy, he doesn't want to have his fingerprints on a 2023 recession. I think that would round out a bad experience for him. And he does not. And rightly so. Nobody does. Nobody wants to have their fingerprints on a recession. They're not good. They're not good things. And if you can avoid it, you know, let's steer the car away from that oncoming uh, freight train and avoid that recession if we can. And the way you do that is by not you know, hiking and hiking and hiking interest rates. I do desperately hope you're right, mate. I, uh, I think there, is, there are some things going in our favour. Uh, notwithstanding, by the way, that inflation's already started to tip down. Uh, we hadn't mentioned, but just you know, in, in December, we saw Australian inflation, US inflation and UK inflation all fall. By the same token, we also saw, uh, again in the week we're recording, the US, U, uh, England and the ECB all hike rates by half a percent. So they are still hiking. Mind you, their inflation is higher than ours. Maybe that's Which is actually difference. good for future inflation, by the way. As we're right, saying, right. rate hikes do lower inflation. 
Yes. Right. I have a feeling too, mate, a suspicion, I'd, I'd feel free to comment on this. I reckon the OBA is pretty happy they've got a scheduled meeting off in January. I reckon <laughs> they, you know, because it, it saves them having to worry about do we actually pause? They, they can almost say to themselves and to others, well, we're not actually pausing the rate rises. We're just having a month off anyway. And so they actually get a month without them and they get a couple of months of data before they have to go back to that table. If I'm the RBA, given those circumstances you've talked about, given how close they might be to potentially either going too far or to pausing, Having that month off, I mean, they can't have a meeting, I guess, if they want to, if there was an emergency reason, but they're not scheduled to sit again until February. That I reckon I'd be pretty happy about that if I was the RBA. Yes, and most importantly, or maybe most importantly, you know, the December quarter inflation numbers come out a, a week and a half before that next board meeting in early February. Yeah, Again, one quarterly inflation number. We know it's going to be elevated. We know it's going to be high because of the lingering effect of energy prices and some uh, flood effects on food prices and the like. So there's going to be a, it's going to be a high number in a sense but we know that. So I think you're quite right that the RBA would be sitting back thinking, thank goodness we can sort of watch the cricket and put our feet up at the beach and <laughs> you know, and um, and take it easy until we see the, the data coming through. Yeah, there is another labour force release. There's more job advertisements numbers. And absolutely vitally, absolutely vitally, they will have good insights into how much we consumers were spending over the, the Christmas, New Year, summer holiday period. If that turns out to be resilient, you know, so if we're sort of out there spending, you know, quite merrily and spending at an above seasonally uh, adjusted sort of pace over that period, well, then, okay, they're going to hike in February because the, they'll have the cover also of that high CPI number. But if they do find that the anecdotes coming through from the bank bank data on credit card turnover and from what retailers are telling them, and don't forget, the RBA has a very, very good business liaison program. So they'll, they'll, so they'll ring up the big retailers and say, hey, mate, you know, how, how are your sales over December and January? And they'll say, oh, they were pretty good. Or they'll say, oh, gee, they were shocking. No one came into our store. That sort of anecdote from the big retailers will be a dominant issue in my view on whether they hike or not in February. I, and I reckon there's uh, going to be some uh, sweaty palms picking up the phone receivers making those phone calls because they're the ones that if they get the right answer, they'll be like, oh, thank God. And if they get the wrong answer, like, oh, here we go again. Mate, and they do want the and they do want us to pair back our spending. That's the other thing. So, uh, you know, if you don't want a rate hike, stay at home and don't spend any money. That's what Philo has been. No, I mean, that's effectively what Philo has been saying. For those who who like the Batuta advocate, by the way, and I will stress, this is massively not suitable for work. If you're even slightly offended by very, 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 very bad language, don't don't look at it. Uh, but there are there's a there's a very funny one. I think it was November um, of 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 a, a hypothetical uh, thought bubble from Philo saying, "For the love of God, people, I've told you to stop spending. Would you please just say?" home which which kind of exactly your point is <laughs> yes. I, mean, I mean if he could say it he absolutely would made a couple of quick ones in to finish off um house prices in sydney are down seven and a half percent i think they're in all major capitals with the exception of perth and or darwin i can't remember which uh, maybe both yes um higher rates and just simply the, the ongoing pressure of mortgage rates being so high will pressure house prices do you have a view on where things might get to over 2023 yeah, look, um, they have fallen, as you said, nationwide about 7-odd percent, maybe 7.5% when we get the December numbers uh, soon. Um, so that's broadly what I thought the peak to trough would be. It's probably going to be – now, it's, it's probably – it's certainly going to be a little bit bigger fall than that. Now, okay, this is this question. What drives house prices? Interest rates, clearly, yes, they're an important driver, and so what the RBA does with future rates will be important. However – 
We do know that immigration um, has started again. We look at the inflow of people. They've got to live somewhere. We know the rental market's as tight as a drum, that it's very, very hard to find any rental property. Vacancy rates are low. Rents are going up massively. Does that help support house prices? Maybe. Does the labour market remain reasonably resilient? It's much, much easier to get a mortgage if you've got a job than if you don't. So if the unemployment rates, you know, well, it's going to go up, doesn't go up much, people might say, oh, gee, there's a bit of uh, relief in the topping out of interest rates and the like. So my hunch is, look, clearly the pressure on house prices is more skewed to flat to down, uh, but there are a couple of indicators. Good old-fashioned demand from population growth is one that will help support the economy. And the other thing, which is sort of a mixed message for the economy and housing in particular, we know a lot of uh, property developers will be looking at the equation of falling house prices, rising costs, interest rates and cost of uh, inputs. And so they're not going to build. You know, we're going to see a bit of a bit of a supply side problem. Now, that probably doesn't matter in a month or two or three, but it's a more medium-term issue that we're going to have demand and supply imbalance favouring higher house prices at some stage during this year. So, look, short-term prices down still, yep, unambiguously, but how close are we to the bottom and the fear of missing out or the opportunities from cheaper or lower prices might just attract a few buyers into the market. <laughs> and again, maybe, yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of those situations of lower prices adds to demand, as, as it should, and so you end up with that, that balancing effect as long as you don't have any particularly significant selling pressure, like, for example, job losses or, or people who are, do roll over those uh, variable rates from fixed and end, end up in trouble. Made a couple of th- quick ones then for you. Uh, I have a view, and I don't know if you have a view or if you want to express a view, uh, that the big, one of the bigger mistakes during the last three years was APRA using the lending buffer inappropriately, injudiciously maybe I'll say. Um, I actually am increasingly of the view that it would be useful for APRA to use the buffer counter-cyclically rather than, anything, rather than, rather than stabilising it. So that when rates go down to increase the flow of money through the economy, having the buffer increase would limit the bubbleness of house prices and on the flip side yeah. when uh when they want to restrain the economy lowering the buffer as rates go up because you know let's say rates oh, let's be stupid let's say the very break is seven and a half percent there is no point yep. at that point you know uh, evaluating a loan ability to repay a 10 percent because never going to get there without the economy completely uh, co- being destroyed. Correct. I, w- yeah, I would yeah. if i was in charge of APRA for a day i would simply institute a policy use those counter cyclically around some sort of average long run rate on, on the simple assumption that if rates are super low, you should have a higher buffer because they could go up a lot more, yes. as we've seen. Your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree completely. Look, the, the buffer was a strange thing. And if I recall correctly, they did have a, a, a simple 7% rule, I think, at one stage. That may have changed. I might have been uh, a bit foggy in my memory, but just say they had a 7% buffer. So whether the mortgage interest rate was 2 or 6%, 7% was it. Because... Yeah. Yeah, evaluated at seven, and maybe if we do get to seven, you know, plus or minus a percentage point because you know we, we might be wrong. You know, the inflation might be more entrenched, and they might go to eight. But basically, keep it at that level. So when interest rates at two percent, well, there's a five percentage point buffer that, that should have been filtered into the or factored into the factored into the equation. So yes, that was yeah, it, the buffer needs to be there. There's no question. Mm-hmm. We don't want people Screw borrowing that. at two percent on the assumption that it's going to stay two percent forever because it won't. Yeah, correct. Or at seven percent. You know, because oh, I can't get my house because oh, I'm being assessed at ten percent, um, and therefore you actually deter buying 
presumably when um, you know, affordability is going to be a little bit better for that person. So I agree completely. And you also, you also impact asset prices unnecessarily in both directions. You just don't need to, particularly for an asset that is absolutely an investment asset, but but largely is, is shelter. It, it is, it is more, it's a social good or, or public good, not a, not a public good Correct. in a sense, but yeah. Mate, last one for you. And this is, <laughs> uh, let, let me, I've left the best one to last. Uh, Jim Chalmers is going to get a review in the middle of the year uh, as to the RBA's best function. So I'm going to ask you two questions. I'll, I'll give you a notice of both. Uh, first, I'm going to ask you, how would you change, if you would change, the RBA's mandate or the way it's run in terms of this review? And secondly, I'll ask you the second one now, but you can order, answer whatever you want. Would you reappoint Phil Lowe if you were Jim Chalmers in six months' time? The RBA review uh, is important. It hasn't been reviewed for many decades. So what they're going to be doing is sort of having a, a root and branch assessment of what the RBA does and how it does it and for the betterment of Australian society, you know, of course. We don't we don't want the RBA to do anything other than manage monetary yes. policy <laughs> for, for the betterment of society. To me, the uh, changes that will probably come through or should come through or should be implemented by, by Treasurer Chalmers and, you know, he doesn't have to embrace everything that the review committee will come up with and we're not sure what that is yet. But basically, the 2 to 3% inflation target, I think, is sound. Let's stick to that. That's a good one. Having... Uh, elevated standing for the labour market is an important thing. Now, I know they have as an objective fully employment under the current Act, and they, of course, take a you know a strong view of what happens to the labour market in their assessment of interest rates, but maybe elevate that a little bit higher up in the assessment of what to do with policy settings. Um, my other suggestions are more procedural. So more, I want to hear more from the RBA. You know, we hear every night in the US... There must be a dozen <laughs> Fed officials that talk, and I can't even keep track. Is yeah, this a Fed official yeah. or some, you know, spruker? But, you know, the RBA doesn't talk very often. In fact, interestingly, in this last few months, when, you know, like inflation's a hot topic and unemployment being low is a hot topic, um, you know, Governor Lowe and his uh, offsiders haven't really spoken much, right. and they've got a chance to sort of mould what you and I are thinking when we're talking to clients and writing things about the economy and all the rest mm. of it. I think I'd like them to speak more. Okay. I'd like them to do a press conference after every board meeting. One, yeah. Uh, and have that open to, you know, perhaps people who register to ask questions because you, know, you don't want, you know, again, there's yeah, yeah. Um, some sort of way, but speak speak more, hear from them more. Mm. I'd like them to put out a little bit more research, and I know they do some excellent research papers, but perhaps publish a little bit more because I, I know there's a million and one things in their top drawer, mm. <laughs> um, and maybe they're a bit politically sensitive, but, hey, life's politically sensitive. We want to get the yeah, right yeah, outcome. Yeah. So the other thing, I'd have a few less board meetings. We meet every month. I'd, ha I'd, I'd reduce the board meetings to uh, eight a year. Oh, wow. Two weeks after, okay. two weeks after the uh, GDP numbers and two weeks after the quarterly inflation numbers. Right. So, for example, the December board meeting happened the day before we got the GDP that numbers. Now, makes me – why don't they – surely they could change one of those. Correct. In that instance, it probably didn't make any difference to what they would have decided. But sometimes you sort of say, oh, they left rate steady and, oh, wow, there's a booming <laughs> GDP number. If only they'd known that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'd change the timing yeah, okay. slightly to, to eight a year, which does allow them to communicate more too, rather than every month, you know. Um, so that would be one other little little That's reform. Funny. And I would change the composition of the board. I think the board is um, full of highly competent people, but I don't know if they have an expertise on monetary policy. And in fact, my my approach would be to have the board with at least a number of people from financial markets mm -hmm. 
uh, now under the current arrangements that you're you're not allowed to for obvious reasons. You go to the board. Oh, I know they're going to hike rates. So from but you would actually second them. So you'd get and look. I'll use Bill Evans as a great example, the chief economist from Westpac. Imagine having Bill on the board for a two year secondment. You know, pay him. I don't know what wage, you know, something to make it attractive, but it's also the status. I'm on the RBA board. So we'd have to leave Westpac, you know, for, for two years um, or whatever it is, be on the board, pay him a decent market salary, and he could almost be a full-time board member talking to the governor, talking to the, the RBA team, as well as having a, a couple of business people, that's fine, a couple of academics, fine, a couple of uh, people from the Labor, L-O-U-R, side of the economy, so, you know, just talking about what's happening on wages and these sorts of things would be part of it. So I'd change the structure of the board. And finally, as part of that changing the structure of the board, Phil Lowe, would I reappoint him? Um, I well, I think the whole, it's not just a Phil Lowe question, whether it was Phil Lowe or or Guy Nabell or, you know, Glenn Stevens. The, board, the RBA board needs an overhaul. The RBA needs an overhaul. I'd get some fresh blood in there. Uh, and it's part of the whole board structure too. You'd get it. You'd get an what I would call an outsider in there, uh, and just change the whole composition from governor down composition of the board. Let's have a rethink about what we look at when we examine whether to hike rates, cut rates, implement quantitative easing, <laughs> or tightening, or whatever the case may be. Mate, the last one I'm going to just throw at you, and I think I may have said this last time around, or I may not have. Um, I've certainly been vocal on Twitter. I think you and I have probably chatted about this in passing, but. I would, I would actually, ironically, given we've spent a lot of time about the RBA today, I ironically would actually love to see us focus a little bit less on the RBA in an absolute sense or in a relative sense, because it, it kind of once a month we say the RBA's wrecked the economy, the RBA's fixed the economy, the RBA's doing terrible things, the RBA's doing great things. My my honest view over the last, why I give the central banks around the world a bit more leeway than most is because. I have a very clear sense they were the last adults in the room through most of the last four or five years. When when governments weren't prepared to do the things that should have been done, the central banks went, well, okay, well, I guess every once a month, or maybe eight times a year, as you say, in future, but once a month, it's our job to say, well, here's the cards we've been dealt. How do we play them? And that's, that's what they need to do, but we don't ever, or we don't, not ever, I know there's enough attention paid in the media and maybe even the commentariat, mate, about... Actually, why are those the cards they were dealt? In other words, what does government do with fiscal policy, uh, other regulations, so that the RBA has a decent place to start from? I feel like sometimes they were kind of yep. given the proverbial what's he sandwich and said, eat this. And I'm like, well, I guess I've got it yeah. then, right? You don't, you don't have a choice if the only tool you've got is monetary policy. Add a bit of QE and the old Glenn Stevens jawbone. But you know, you've, got, you've got the choice of up, down or sideways. That's it. Uh, compared to governments that have just departments and departments and a million different things they could do, I think we're a bit, a bit rough on the old RBA. Well, right now, or you know, in the last 12 months, let's say, but also also right now, if you're worried about inflation and you want to cool the economy down, wouldn't a okay, I'll be radical here, wouldn't a wouldn't a temporary 12 month hike in the GST to 15% also cool the economy down? Whereas interest rate hikes only affect, you know, only about 15 to 20% of the population who have a large enough mortgage for it to worry them. And 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 by the way, a, a big hike in the GST, temporary because the economy is overheating, actually helps fix the budget. It sucks money out of the economy as you and I and everybody else pays 5% more for, you know, everything that's GST. Uh, and then if we find in, or if the government finds it by the end of the year, oh gosh, the economy is now cooled down, inflation's under target, that we've actually dampened consumer spending. And with that, we've dampened the inflation rate. Hey, we'll drop the GST to 10%. So you use fiscal policy as an automatic stabilizer. Now there are some 
clunky things that are associated with that. But but there yeah. are some clunky yeah. things. But hey, life's clunky, yeah, you know. Um, you know, or, or you actually even have a maybe you even have a quarterly review of the GST. Yeah, you know, we have a monthly board meeting. Hopefully. Um, only 80 year <laughs> after my suggestion, yes. but you know, um, but we have a quarterly discussion on the GST, and um, a panel of smart people get together, and, and there are lots of smart people around. And say, okay, for this quarter, we're going to hike the GST from 10 to 12 percent, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for most people, it's the cash register. You just put 12 into your number. It's, it's yep, easy. Yep. So it's really easy. Oh, the economy is still strong. We'll bump it up to 13. Oh, the economy is weak. It drop it down to 10. Mm-hmm. Now that assumes that the governments will sort of. Um, I'm being cynical here. Just before an election, I wonder if they put up a GST. <laughs> or whether, yeah. yep. So there is that problem, yeah, yeah. P- politics politics dominating policy. But if we're having a pure policy discussion, I would make fiscal policy carry a bit more, not a lot more, but a bit more weight in dampening economic booms and supporting economic busts. Now, we know they support economic busts, GFC and COVID, pumping money into the economy like crazy. Good, yet absolutely appropriate. When the economy's hot and inflation's running hot, we don't see the reversal of that. Correct. Mate, I, this is a, this, I, I've gone too long already. You've been very generous with your time. Because it's a holiday episode, I'm going to throw one more thought at you because you mentioned uh, the GST story. I, I want to just – here's an idea. I had a, a listener of our other podcast, Motley for Money, threw this one at me. And I really like this one. And I, it's an imperfect, and it can't just be in and of itself. Monetary policy for foreign exchange and other reasons has to play a role. But to your point about GST, one listener said, what if we used – the superannuation guarantee levy as the as the so you know GST you pay more money to the government and someone wins about how much tax I've got to pay and whatever let's say with the superannuation guarantee at 10 and a half percent the government says you know we've got to cool the economy down let's increase the SG levy to 11 and a half percent instead and and bosses are you know it, it's you you not bosses have paid no more money for for companies to pay it just means instead of getting 10 half percent of my salary I get one percent less in the pay packet one percent goes in a super instead and that way, it, 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 no, no extra government revenue, which frankly the government could do with, so I get that view. But his idea was kind of like, no one loses then, right? Because if, you, if I have less money in my pocket, but there's more money in super, then it's still my money. I don't feel like I've been ripped off. And then when, as you say, things get tough, you say, let's drop the SG guarantee down to 10% and put an extra half a percent in the economy for a period of time. I, I like the GST one, but I just really like this suggestion from a listener because it was <laughs> it was it was pain free yeah. in the sense that you don't feel like the government's ripping money off you or you know there, there's no kind of there's no kind of sense of Big Brother stealing more of my money. It's just no, we're putting it in that bucket rather than that bucket. It comes out of discretionary spending because you haven't got it. You still get it in retirement, so that's a positive. It felt like a pretty good idea to me. Not a bad idea. I must confess, I haven't thought that one all the way through, but I do like it in in principle. Again, it isn't actually a, a good idea too because again, it's just. Forcing you to save when the economy is booming, and then you know, it gives you a bit of extra leeway when the economy is weak. I, I think I quite like that idea Not mine, too. But, but again, the, from a listener, yeah. The, yeah, no, no. The, the politics of it would be dreadful. <laughs> the economic theory sounds very, very uh, promising with with monetary policy as well. Stephen, you have been exceedingly kind with your time. If you want more from Stephen, go and check him out on Twitter. Go and jump on LinkedIn and follow him there. He is a font of information. Always a great listen. A really straight shooter. Bring puts things in really, really simple detail, but has a very, very large wealth of knowledge and, and expertise behind him. Stephen, thank you again for joining me on the Good Oil. Thank you very much. Absolutely great fun. And gosh, we covered a lot, didn't we? We did. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.